Let's pray together as we come now to study the Bible, to listen to God's Word, and to hear what it is that Jesus has to say to us. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we come now to your Word, we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to understand, and having understood to be moved to joy and worship in you and so thrilled by who you are to be transformed by that encounter in worship so that our lives are transformed as we go about our daily work, our family, our study outside these buildings as much as inside worshiping you too. We pray that uh, your word would be uh, what it promises to be, living and active, the sword of the Spirit, that as uh, the Word is sown into good soil, there will be 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. And we pray this for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, we come now to Romans chapter 3, and we're looking this morning, turn with me to your Bibles, to page 941. We have moved one digit further on. Yay! Chapter 3, verses 12 through to verse 20. It's a larger section than normal. And the reason for that will become evident as, as we read it. And uh, we are now at this point in Paul's argument. He's announced in chapter 1 that he is describing as the theme of his letter that he's unashamed of the gospel. The reason why he's unashamed, he then explains. This is the gospel that is the power for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek and then from chapter 1, verse 18, right the way through to chapter 3, verse 20, he explains why he's unashamed. And the reason why is this is truly for everyone, both for the Jew and for the Gentile, both for the religious and for the non-religious. And he explains it, as we saw last week, as he begins to summarize the reason for that, it is because we're all sinners, every single one of us. And he has this general statement in verses 9 to 11 of how everyone is a sinner. We looked at that last week. And Paul's doing all this not to depress us or put us down, but help us to realize that this gospel of which his, his theme for this letter, he is unashamed and we too should be unashamed. It is the most important thing in the whole universe for it is the salvation for everyone, Jew as well as Greek, Jew as well as Gentile, religious as well as non 
religious. It is the great need for all of humanity, and therefore it is something to celebrate, something to put our trust in, something to exalt in, something to pray, find our praises in, to worship because of this truth that he is describing for us. And now he comes to uh, verses 12 to 20, and he begins to break it down, the particularities, the specifics. And the reason why he's doing this, of course, is because though we know that we are all sinners, not everyone does know that. Though we, many of us here this morning, know that we know Jesus and know that we need Jesus, not everyone does know that. How do we persuade people that Jesus, this historic figure 2,000 years ago, is indeed the most important person in the world today in the 21st century? How do we persuade people of that reality? Well, Paul now is beginning to discuss that. So verse 12, let me read it for us. All have turned aside, together they have become Worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Even through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, this is God's word. Now we have to ask ourselves, why are we looking at this passage this morning? Why spend time in 2014, the 21st century, considering this great long list of quotations from the Old Testament, especially when it's a great long list of quotations that's all about sin. Why should we do that? It's hardly a cheery topic for a Sunday morning. Well, as I've already indicated, the reason for that is because not everyone in our world knows that they need Jesus. And how are we to persuade them? And how we ourselves to realize with fresh power that we need Jesus. Surely we all realize the importance of this. We have, we have friends, don't we? We have, I guess we all have friends, right? <laughs> we have family members, friends, family members who, when we talk to them with enthusiasm about Jesus, they listen with patience and hope that our enthusiasm will begin to peter out so that they can change the topic of conversation because they don't know that they need Jesus. What's the answer to all that? How do we show people that they need Jesus? People today will say, if Jesus is the answer, what is the question? In other words, they don't see that the solution of Jesus has any particular relevance to their lives. They don't know that uh, they need Jesus. Now, if we've been at all well-schooled in the things of the Christian theology and Christian thinking, we will perhaps reply, well, it's because we're all sinners. 
but people don't think they're sinners. <laughs> and then perhaps as we were maybe listening last week, we say, well, you've misunderstood sin. Sin is not just this guilt trip. Sin is a declaration of a state of being. We're under sin or we're under grace. It's an issue of realm, of place, of position, of state, of who is our Lord, who is our master. And we describe it like that, and they say, well, now I understand a little bit more about what you're saying, but I still don't think I'm under sin. You know, they look outside, and the weather is nice for the one month a year that it is in Chicago. And they have a nice family, and they have a nice house, a nice car, a nice job. Doesn't seem very real, this idea of sin. Seems quaint, old-fashioned, somewhat Puritan. You're just waiting for the hat with the buckle on it to appear. doesn't cut any ice, as, as we might say. And so Paul begins to explain uh, how we can become conscious of our need of Jesus. And as I say, it's not to depress us, it's all to exalt Him and encourage us to praise Him and to find all our exaltation in Him. Simply, it's divided into two sections. There's the great long list of quotations from various parts of the Old Testament. This was a common pattern for rabbis of the time to string together a set of quotations. And so Paul does something similar. They do it to trace a particular theme through the Bible. And so Paul follows that pattern. It would have been familiar to the Jews in his audience, and he does that. And then, so that's the first section. And then from verse 19 and 20, uh, Paul concludes of what the purpose is, what the meaning is of that quotation. So let's look at this passage, uh, passage together under this simple division. Verses 12 to 20 to begin with this list of various quotations in the Old Testament. And you can find all the references in your footnotes in your Bibles as well as I can. And what's the point of this? Well, it's meant to convey the message of the law. Now, when I say law, most of us will immediately think of the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses and the Mount Mount Sinai and all that, and that, of course, is how the word is often used, but it's not the only way the word is used in the Bible. Sometimes, as earlier in Romans, the word law is used of the general principle that was given in our hearts, even the conscience that we have to, to realize that we've broken God's law. Other times, Paul uses it of the Scriptures in general. In uh, Galatians and First Corinthians, he uses it that way. We'll, we'll look at that in a moment. I just want you to bracket that word law. And we'll come to that when we come to verses 19 and 20 and consider it in that place. This then is, if you like, the message of the Scriptures on this theme of how we know we need Jesus. And so verse 12 tells us about uh, deeds, and then we have words and then plans. Deeds, what we do, what we, how we act. And words, how we speak, the utterance of our mouths, and then plans, the choices that we, that we make. Deeds, words, plans, verses 12 uh, through to verse uh, 18. 
And the first uh, part of this, deeds, actions, verse 12, uh, begins with a sense of um, carry on from Psalm 14 that we looked at last week. And now it comes to the specifics of deeds, actions. He says, no one does good. Or, of course, immediately, we want to say, well, that's not true. I know lots of people who do good things. Lots of unbelievers who do good things, and some of them maybe do things that are better than believers that I know. So when Paul says no one does good, what does he mean? Of course, we need to affirm that there really are people who do good things, who are unbelievers, in one sense. Of course there are, and we're grateful for that. There's much that is done that is good in that sense in this world. It's an expression of God's common grace, and we're grateful for it. But in this sense, well, truly there is no one who does good. Take the greatest philanthropist, the most generous unbeliever. Well, that's better than someone doing something like murder, isn't it? Of course. But, and there are these gradations of sin that have greater or worse effects. But we have to ask, why are they doing these apparently good things? What is the motivation? Is it because they're really doing it for God? Now, that's the Bible's definition of good, done for the glory of God. Now, you'll want to come back and say immediately, well, that's begging the question, because an unbeliever won't do things for God because they don't believe in God, and yet they do do some good things. Well, in that sense, they do, but in this other more profound sense, no one does. Look at this way, you see. Surely you've been to one of those secular fundraisers. You know, perhaps you've been to one of those, or you've heard about them. There's a great fundraising ball, and everyone, a great party, and everyone turns up to raise money for some good cause. And that's all wonderful in one sense, of course, and yet you see how careful people are to give in a way that will give them praise. <laughs> Our list of eminent donors. <laughs> they will give so that they get something in return. Again, it's not all bad. There's some good to it. But not in the sense that Paul here is talking about. In another way, perhaps you could say this is the whole problem with special interests in government. They give. Oh, how generous. And yet there are strings attached. It's not really something good for someone else, is it? It's, it's really something good done for someone else, the understanding that something good we done back to you because you did something good. It's a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And the other way around, world isn't it? In fact, we could say there's no truly good deed done if it's not done for God's glory. You see, why is that? Well, because someone has to have the attention. Someone has to have the praise. Someone has to be the ultimate focus of attention in our world. That's the way we're made. We want to give glory to someone or something.
And that, of course, is why certain well-known figures, celebrities, like to be photographed as they do something good. (laughs) It's good business to be photographed as they do something good. So why are they doing it? Well, not for God. Somewhat for the other person, of course, but for themselves. This is the reality of life, isn't it? And we can begin to see how clear the Bible is, how much the Bible is so obviously God's Word when it describes this reality. It peels back the the niceness to help us see our need of Jesus. Then we come to verses 13 to 15. We've had deeds and and actions, and now Paul's quoting from a few psalms here, as you can see from your footnotes, a few psalms, perhaps Proverbs, and and from Isaiah. Uh, I've been told that's the Pauline pronunciation, by the way. I don't think it is at all. You probably know what the Pauline pronunciation is. I'm sure it's very different. And the focus of all this is uh, now, as I say, not deeds, but words, speech, utterance of the mouth. And the, the imagery is really quite disgusting, isn't it? I mean, Paul says, open grave. But then, you know, you hear the clever, sweet-sounding words. And then you look in the mouth, and you're looking, as it were, down an open casket. It's been buried for some time, and there's rottenness and stench and decay. That's the image. It's a sort of horror movie picture. But, but then the sweet words that have an evil intention behind them are, are horrible, aren't they? And then Paul says, uh, the venom of asps is under their lips. Asp, uh, some kind of snake. And so the picture there is you have these sweet lips pronouncing sweet words, but the snake has a poison pouch behind its teeth that when it opens wide, the teeth come down and one of the teeth pierces the little pouch of poison and then as it pierces the flesh that it bites into, it injects the poison into the wound. It's a sort of Indiana Jones, snakes hissing in the last crusade kind of picture, isn't it? Except it's not a movie, it's real. Sweet words, meant to deceive. Poisonous. Now, you may say at this point, well, come on there. There's Paul. There he goes again. Such a negative, hard-nosed kind of guy. But, but hold on there. Don't you and I know that this is exactly what life is like? You go to some meeting and everyone smiles at you and pats you on the back for your sales figures being so good. Well done, they all say, and shake your hand and smile at you. And, and then you walk out the door and the conversation changes. We know this is what happens, right? Gossip. 
Gossip is everywhere. People love it. If you want the hits on your web page to go right up, all you need to do is put gossip on it. It's delicious, sweet. Or in government, all the smoke-filled rooms of people planning and talking and scheming together about this or that, and so their words are used to get this or that other thing done, and deals are made in private, and then the sweet talk happens in public, the spin happens all the time. This is life. What is the solution? See, all this is intended to, to peel back the layer of our self-deceived niceness, to see the reality of the situation we're in so that, not to depress us, not to put us down, but to lift our eyes up and say, wow, I need Jesus. Wow, isn't it amazing I have him? Now, when we uh, read the next thing he says, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, we'll think, well, okay, I can accept the previous statements, but this one seems to be going a bit too far. People are not all the time cursing and swearing. Uh, Some are, but not everyone. But Paul doesn't say that everyone is swearing and cursing. He says that their mouths are full of it. In other words, there is an intentionality, and in the right instance, it It comes out. It can be held back by politeness. But in the right moment, it comes out. Someone takes a pillow and in private with the door shut, they hold it against their mouth and scream all the words that they've been wanting to say. Or they uh, write an email. And they write in the email all the words they've been wanting to say and they carefully don't send it but when they've calmed down they delete it politeness holds it back and that's that's not a bad thing (laughs) but in the right instance what's in there comes out and I don't just mean you hit your thumb with a hammer. I mean there's some calamity that comes your way and then you rail and curse. Some people curse God and die, as Job's wife encouraged him to do. It's fall in the mouth takes all of our politeness to hold it back. But it's right there all the time, isn't it? So deeds, what we do, words, what we say, plan, and then plans, verses 15 to 17. And it's either from Proverbs here or Isaiah. See, I'm learning. And uh, here it's using the imagery of feet and paths and way to bring up this idea of making choices this way or that way, this trajectory or that trajectory. And they're making plans which are not towards God but is in enmity with each other. Now, of course, in business, we're told all the time to avoid this in our negotiations. Think win-win. That's what we're told, 
right? But who is actually winning here? And what is the plan? There's a deal with some group, a merger that is being purported to happen. And what's the overall intention? What happens when the deal breaks down? Another deal is needed. There's this constant battling and fighting for prominence. Hiring the right people, taking them away from your competitors. <laughs> you see it within recent news about internet espionage in corporate spying. and You see it in the boardroom. You see it in the playground. Come and join my game. You don't want to? Oh, I'll just forget you then, I'll play on my own. The whole of life is this one great fight against each other. George Orwell put it like this, if you want to imagine the future, picture a boot constantly stamping on a human face. That's what it would be like without Jesus. Except it's not the system, it's not the structure, it's not the organization. Uh, That's what Paul's saying. It's not this system or that system, this structure of society or that structure of society, that if we could just change the system, then the true niceness in each other would naturally emerge. Oh, no. Of course, the right system can prevent some of the worst things and encourage some of the better things, but, but it's not the system. It's us. It's all intended to lead us to realize why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, why we, why we are not to be either, why we can go out that door going, I am so glad that I have Jesus It's not just a little thing. It's not just an addition to my life. He is my life. See? Because of the reality of all that is around us and in us. You say, well, what's the reason for this extraordinary situation? Paul says there is but one cause. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, of course, some people do fear God in some sort of way when they're facing some great difficulty. They pray to God when there's a disaster that they think might be happening. They pray in their desperation. But that's not the sort of fear of God that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about something pervasive. It's this loving, reverential, awe-filled joy and respect and honor in who God is. You see, the reason why people behave like this is because they do not fear God. They don't fear punishment. They don't fear that there'll be any judgment. They think this life is all there is. If you want to create a society where people will be maximally unpleasant to each other 
all you need to do is remove the fear of God. For then when no one is watching, people will naturally do what Paul has described in verses 12 to 17. And conversely, all the true revival, true religion, the power of God through the gospel is about reorientating us to this true kind of fear of God, this respect, this honor, this love, this worship of God for who He is. As Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want neighbor love, you re-establish God love. So that's the message. It's an astonishing thing. We, we should sit back in it, but, but also let it shape us and orientate us and direct us to the feet of Jesus. Think of the story of that blind man hearing that Jesus was coming by saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so, of course, the whole purpose of this sort of preaching is to help us do that, to help us see our need of Jesus. And that's what Paul explains in verses 19 and 20. He puts it like this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 19 is perhaps one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. So that every mouth may be stopped. Picture all those mouths talking and gossiping and chattering away. And <laughs> and then here's a picture of a law court. There's a prominence of sort of law court imagery in these verses. And the case is heard. And the hand goes over the mouth. There's nothing to say. Every mouth stopped. So the whole world to be held accountable or answerable to God. The word accountable was found nowhere else in the Bible except here. In extra biblical Greek, that's Greek, outside of the Scriptures, it has the sense of being held to account or having to answer. We will not be questioning God now. All these voices going on and on and on. I just want to say, let let me tell you, my opinion is stopped. Silent. It's very powerful thought. 
who will rescue us. It shows us our need of Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. Paul's making all this now crystal clear as he comes towards the end of this first stage of his argument in his letter to the Romans. And then verse 20 does very much the same thing, except Paul once more inserts this key word of his justification or righteousness into the verse. And so he's declared, verse 16 and then verse 17 of chapter 1, his theme, the righteous shall live by faith. And now he's saying that that is such good news because there's no other way to be justified, no other way to be righteous. It's not by works of the law. Now, what does that phrase mean? Some recently, uh, you may know, have suggested that by this, Paul only means things like circumcision or food rituals. But when you think about it in the context, as we've been doing, as we've been going through these first couple of chapters, that really is quite an extraordinary mistake to make, it seems to me. No one is righteous, not even one. Every mouth stopped. The whole world held accountable. He's been talking about deeds and words and plans. Clearly, Paul does not just mean not eating pork or not getting circumcised. Now, by the law here, Paul may be referring specifically to the Mosaic law, and if you take it that way, it won't make any difference to your interpretation of this text at all. Or he may be referring to all the Scriptures. I think that's what he's doing myself, just because he's quoted from the Psalms and Isaiah. But either way, Paul is saying that the Bible, as it held holds up the standard of God, shows us who we are by comparison and therefore speaks our need of Jesus. First of all, to those under the law, the Bible was first given to the Jews. We know that. It's clear for their great privilege and blessing. And so Paul is saying that of those who had this great high standing, if even they did not keep the law, if even they did not do the law, the works of the law being a, a subset of good works that God requires, if even they could not do it, then no one can and no one does. Now, the law is intended in this use of the law for a different purpose, not for justification, not for righteousness before God, but to help us see our need of Jesus. In short, there is no greater passage to read before communion. If you are in Christ, you now gather around a table that tells you that the price has been paid, that your sins have been forgiven, that Christ's righteousness is yours. What greater joy could you have? (laughs) 
If you're not a Christian, you gather around a table that is not yet yours, but could be. If you believe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come now to this, your table, we pray, having seen from your word our great need of you, that the cup would be especially sweet to our taste. That the the bread would delight us. And that by your Spirit we would leave this morning thrilled that we are yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.